Thank you, Seth and Bonnie, for that ministry and music. <coughs> Last week, we considered sexual abuse. This morning, we consider how important true justice is in dealing with wrongdoing. It's important that we be people of justice, that we execute justice in our families and in society as a whole. In the book of Micah, chapter 6, verse 8, it asks the question, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This morning, we are going to try to convey the ramifications of a lack of justice in dealing with sin. David's primary role as king was to administer justice. He was to be a judge. He was to minister justice. And the kingdom was to reflect God's kingdom, the way in which God rules in righteousness and holiness and justice. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 8, there was a summary statement of David's kingship up until that point. In 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 15, it reads as follows. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. That was the capstone, that was the summary, that was the glory, that was the beauty of David's kingship, that he administered justice and equity to all his people. Then we move into a period of David's kingship when he failed miserably in administering justice and equity. That period begins with David's adultery and David's murder of the innocent husband Uriah. At that point, justice goes out the window. Not just justice for David individually, but justice in the kingdom. Nathan had come to David and said that there would be long-term ramifications of David's conduct. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10, it reads, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So we learn how a lack of justice leads to strife, turmoil, and destruction. There would be ramifications for David individually, David's family, David's kingship, and yes, David's kingdom. All would be affected as a result of David's failure to be administering justice. In this passage before us, and it's a very long passage, and I sent out an email and hope that you got it to, to read this section because I can't go through it in its entirety verse by verse, but what we want to see in the passage is the long-reaching effects of injustice. They are subtle, but they are pernicious. When a kingdom experiences injustice, there are a myriad of problems associated with it. And this morning, the theme of the message is the problems associated with vigilante justice as opposed to true justice. The problems associated with vigilante justice as opposed to true justice. As we ended our study last week, Amnon had violated his sister Tamar. Now, what was to come of that? As we left the narrative, we found out in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 21, that David 
when he heard all these things, was angry. He was angry. But I mentioned last week as a precursor to this week, but David does nothing. Absalom's response was hatred in verse 22. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. And I mentioned that that hatred would go unchecked. And so at this point we pick up the narrative and we want to focus on the problems that are associated with vigilante justice. The problems associated with vigilante justice. First, in the absence of true justice, we see a vigilante justice arise. Vigilante justice is not and cannot be a replacement for true justice. It is, in fact, injustice. David's lack of justice results in an ensuing vigilante justice. So let me define that for you. Vigilante justice often describes the actions of a single person or group of people who claim to enforce the law but lack the legal authority to do so. However, the term can also describe a general state of disarray or lawlessness in which competing groups of people all claim to enforce the law in a given area. The point is, since David does nothing about Abnon's abuse of Tamar, Absalom takes matters into his own hands. Two years have passed since Amnon's abuse of Tamar, verse 3, after two full years. And Absalom throws a feast in connection with the sheep shearing in order to have an occasion to kill Amnon. That's found in verse 23. Absalom invites David to the feast, knowing that David is unlikely to attend Verse 24, Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. David refuses to attend in verse 25. No, my son. No, my son. David is once again a pawn in the scheme of wrongdoing. Just as he had been a pawn uh, in Amnon's wrongdoing, now he's going to be a pawn in Absalom's wrongdoing. Verse 26, then Absalom said, if it not, please, let my brother Amnon go with us. It appears at this point that David smells a rat. For it tells us in the end of verse 26, And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? Why do you want Amnon to attend this feast? Now remember that up until this point, Absalom and Amnon haven't been talking at all for two years. 2 Samuel 13, 22. But Adam spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad. So why does he want to invite Amnon to this feast when he hasn't been talking to him for two years? Initially, David resists the request, but eventually gives in in verse 27. But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Absalom then has Amnon killed at the hands of of Absalom's servants, verse 28. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Ammon, then kill him. Here we see the corrupting influences of sin upon others. Like David before him, who had Uriah killed as a result of 
the doings of the army, here, Absalom is going to have Amnon killed by his servants. Like David, he doesn't want to dirty his own hands. He doesn't want to be directly involved, but he wants to be directly involved. But what I want to highlight to you is that Absalom's actions are not justice. Absalom's actions are not justice. They are injustice, and they are motivated by revenge. If you notice in verse 32, and uh, we're skipping verses here, I know, but uh, we're focusing on the highlights of these texts. And in verse 32, Jonadab comes before David and tells them that uh, Amnon has uh, been slain. And it says at the end of verse 32, for by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. So from the moment that this violation had occurred, from that moment it had been in the heart of Absalom to kill Amnon. Now while David's failure to administer justice contributes to the whole matter, it is not the sole reason that Absalom kills Amnon. And while, action, while Amnon's actions should have been punished, it would not have involved the death penalty in the Old Testament. Amnon certainly deserves to be punished, but he doesn't deserve to die for what he had done according to the Old Testament law. So even if David had acted as he should have, Absalom would not have been satisfied. For Absalom is not motivated by a desire to glorify God, and he's not motivated by a desire to uphold God's law. He's not motivated by justice. He's motivated by revenge. And revenge is not justice, it is injustice. That's important to lay as a foundation. The second problem with vigilante justice is it breeds authoritarianism. Vigilante justice should not and cannot be justified. When I'm talking about authoritarianism, I'm talking about an individual who declares themselves to be the arbiter of justice, the decider of what is right and wrong. For Amnon tells his servants not to fear the consequences of their actions, for he will assume the responsibility, verse 28. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Now these words, do not fear, for I've commanded you. Do not fear, for I've commanded you. Fear what? Don't fear the consequences. Don't fear the outcome. Don't fear what may happen to you as a result of killing Amnon, for I'm telling you to do it. The guilt will be on me. I've got your back. It's okay. Just do it. Verse 29, so the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded, had commanded. Absalom does indeed bear the guilt for what transpires, but he does not bear the guilt alone. 
Absalom does not have the right to condone what God condemns. Absalom is abusing and corrupting his power. Again, this is not justice. This is injustice. He has no right to command his servants to do such things. The third problem with vigilante justice is that it resists accountability for its actions. He said, I have commanded you, but Absalom is not going to take responsibility for his actions. Rather, Absalom sought to escape justice. Absalom should be killed for having Amnon murdered. Let me say that again. Absalom should have been killed for having murdered Amnon. We know that by the Old Testament law. But perhaps more importantly, Absalom knew that. And Absalom even refers to that fact in verse 32 of chapter 14. For he says at the end of verse 32, Now therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. We'll get to that point in just a moment. But we're foreshadowing to let you know that, that Absalom understands that what he did was a violation of the law, that he has no right to kill Amnon, even though what Amnon did was wrong, but was not worthy of the death penalty, and it wasn't his role to enforce it in the second place. So Absalom becomes a fugitive of justice, verse 34, but Absalom fled. Now, three times in the text, it tells us that Absalom fled so we don't miss it. Absalom is fleeing justice. He's trying to get away from the consequences of what he had done. Verse 34, but Absalom fled. Verse 37, but Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amuhud, king of Geshur. Verse 38, so Absalom fled. So he fled. He's trying to escape justice. He's trying to get away from David. He's trying to get away from any authority that's going to hold him accountable for what he has done. He doesn't want to die as a result. Well, three years passed, according to verse 38. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there for three years. During that three-year period... David does nothing to bring Absalom to justice. He makes no move to hold Absalom accountable for what he has done. He does not send to the king of Geshur to have Absalom deported. He does not send a contingent of men to bring uh, Absalom back, and he does not even send a message to Absalom requiring him to return. So then we ask the question, well, why not? Why not? Why, why doesn't David do anything about what 
Absalom had done in killing Amnon? Well, this, the answer is given to us in verse 39. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. The NIV translates this verse, and King David longed to go to Absalom for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. Now, the commentators agree that the Hebrew here is very obscure. It's really difficult to translate this verse and to know exactly what it is saying. So it's hard to know exactly how to apply it if we don't know exactly what it says. But most likely, verse 39 is saying one of two things. First, it might mean that David had gotten over Amnon's death. Or, it may mean that David was relieved by Amnon's death. So on the one hand, over the passing of time, he gets over the fact that Absalom has done this and Amnon has died and that heat of the moment passes and he just kind of chills out and starts to take it in stride. Or it could mean that he's actually relieved. David doesn't have to deal with this whole thing. He doesn't have to deal with Amnon. He doesn't have to deal with everything that Amnon did. He's dead. He can kind of wash his hands of it and bury his head in the sand. Whatever the case, he has no desire to hold Absalom accountable for what he has done. He doesn't want to enforce the law. He, he doesn't want to bring him to justice. And so, one of the applications we make is that emotion, whether it be anger, hatred, love, pity, or weariness, can all work against justice. That justice requires principle. Justice is a matter of acting upon what is right or wrong, not about what one feels or the intensity of one's responses. There is a progression here, and that's why we're taking these big chunks. The fourth problem with vigilante justice is that vigilante justice should not be accepted. Vigilante justice should not be accepted. Verse 1 now of chapter 14. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. Joab knows that deep down inside, David wants to allow Absalom to live. And the problem is that David can't justify it. David's got a problem. David wants to reach out to Absalom and bring him back and make everything right. But at the same time, he can't justify it. So he's torn. So Joab develops a scheme to get David to accept what Absalom has done. Now remember that this story that's going to be told is not Nathan the prophet coming to David. This is not God sending his servant to tell David what to do. This is Joab, a conniver, himself a corrupter of justice that we will see, especially in the chapters that ensue, 
This is Joab trying to give David a way out. This is Joab's attempt to corrupt justice. So with that in mind, let's look at the narrative. So Joab develops an elaborate story. He concocts this story and then has a woman coming to David under the guise of seeking justice for her son. This whole narrative is about justice. 2 Samuel 14, 2. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. The essence of the story is as follows. First, one brother kills the other brother. Verses 4 through 6. When the woman of Koa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I'm a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. So one brother has killed the other killer, brother, as Absalom has killed Amnon. B. The people say that the murderer should be put to death. Verse 7. And now the whole clan has risen up against your servant and say, give up the man who struck his brother that we may put him to death. So back to this idea, Absalom should die. So everybody is saying he should die. That would mean that the woman would have not an heir. Verse verse 7. Now, the whole clan has been risen against your servant. They say, give up the man who had struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. So they would destroy the heir also. They would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. So she says, now if my other son is killed, then there's going to be no inheritance. He has no brother. This is just going to be horrendous. Which, by the way, has nothing to do with the situation between Absalom and Amnon. Absalom is the heir at this point, because Amnon would have been the heir. Amnon's dead, so Absalom becomes the heir, but he's certainly not the only heir, as we all know that Solomon eventually is going to sit on the throne. He's not the only son of David. This is not apples and oranges. But that often happens with injustice. That is, there are faulty analogies. There are concoctions in which apples are not compared to apples, they're compared to oranges. Well, the king decrees that the brother's life should be spared, verse 8. Then the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give you orders concerning you, verse 11. Then she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Okay. David renders a decision. It is an unjust decision, as we will see in just a few moments. 
So the woman says that the king should apply his decision to his own son Absalom, verses 13 and 14. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. So, David, if you are going to determine that this brother should live, then why shouldn't Absalom live? And if you're going to send this brother home, why don't you send Absalom home? And then she provides a reasoning. And here we see the injustice, for the reasoning falls apart. The reasoning is wrong. For here's the heart of the matter, the reasoning process. How can such an action be justified? How can it just be overlooked? She gives three reasons. First, murder is not so bad because we're all going to die anyway, verse 14. We must all die. We're like water spilled out on the ground. Okay, don't blow this out of proportion. We, everybody's going to die. David says virtually the same thing to Joab when Uriah is killed. One dies in battle, another dies in battle. It's no big deal. It's no big deal. We're all going to die. He just dies a little quicker, that's all. Secondly, she reasons it could never be God's will for a person to be put to death. Certainly, God would not want the living brother to be killed. Look at the middle of verse 14. I'll start with the beginning. To give you the context, we must all die. We're like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Here's the second reason. But God will not take away life. That's not God's will for somebody to die. Well, it's God who established the death penalty. It's God's law that said that this person should be put to death. But she is just ignoring what God's word says and has come to this realization on her own that God wouldn't want anybody to die. There's your out. God doesn't want this. And then thirdly, there is a distortion of the law of God. Banishment is just as good. At the end of verse 14 it says, and he devises means that the banished one will not remain an outcast, referring to God. At best, this might refer to the cities of refuge, but that's for manslaughter, that's not for first degree murder, that's not for premeditated murder. All those things are laid out in great detail in the Old Testament. The point is that everything she says is wrong. And yet David's going to do it. Because he wants to do it. So David sees through it. Nonetheless, the scheme works. Verse 21. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go bring back the young Absalom. So this pretend story Gets its desired end, and Absalom comes back. Uh, and uh, Absalom is a, allowed to return to Jerusalem, verse 23. So Ab- jo- Ab- Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. So Absalom returns to Jerusalem, and his punishment is that he is banished from the presence of David, verse 24. 
And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He has not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and he did not come into the king's presence. He was banished. So now, more time passes. And Absalom is not satisfied with the situation. Verse 28. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Neither the king nor Joab interact with Absalom. He reaches out to Joab repeatedly and it fails. So Absalom develops a scheme to talk to Joab. He's going to burn down Joab's field. That will get his attention. 2 Samuel 14, 29 and following. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. He sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servant, See, Joab's field is next to mine. He has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servant set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? What are you doing? Well, Absalom wants Joab to intercede for Absalom to bring Absalom back into David's presence. Verse 32. Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, come here that I may send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to still be there. Now therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there's guilt in me, let him put me to death. All right? I want to talk to David face to face. And he says, if there's guilt, and of course there is, he says, let me be put to death. But he's confident at this time David has no stomach for this. David isn't going to punish him. David isn't going to hold him accountable. There's going to be no justice here. And it works. Absalom is allowed to come before David, and David receives Absalom warmly. Verse 33. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed him. All is well. They're reunited. They hug. Bygones are bygones. Let's move on. The fifth problem with vigilante justice is that it leads to the corruption of a nation. We are to see the layers of the onion being peeled away that David's actions are, are going to affect him, they're going to affect his family, but they also affect his kingship and his kingdom. What seems like an innocent, it's not innocent, but small thing at the beginning just keeps mushrooming out of hand. For we see now the problems when vigilante justice replaces too just, true justice in the land. See, we've got this false justice. We have this vigilante justice. We have Amnon doing what he wants to do under the guise of justice, of holding Amnon accountable, but it's not real justice. Now we see what happens in a nation. When a nation adopts vigilante justice as opposed to true justice. When people condone sinful actions and justify them. 
So what does Absalom do next? Here is the further deterioration of justice. Absalom flaunts his importance. Verse 1 of chapter 15. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Okay, he's an important dude. So he gets a, a chariot and he gets 50 guys to run before him to show his importance, his prominence. And Absalom seeks to steal the hearts of the people of Israel and create followers, verse 2. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he had said, You're a servant of such and such a tribe in Israel. So Absalom corrupted the people's understanding of justice. Look at verse 3. Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right. Your claims are good and right. Said that to everybody. Everybody that came before his presence. Your claims are good and right. Now, not everybody's claims were good and right. Not everybody was, was in the right, but without fail, that's what he would say. Your claims are good and right. I'm on your side. You're not treated justly. You're getting injustice. Absalom laments the king's lack of justice. Verse 3. Absalom would say to them, see, your claims are good and, and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Oh, what a shame. What a shame. You deserve to be heard. You deserve justice. But David hasn't set up anybody to hear you. They're on their way to receive justice. David had set up people. He beckons them over and says, oh, what a shame, what a shame, what a shame. And yet there probably was some truth in what Absalom was saying. And that is that the people were not getting justice when they were coming before David, as evidenced in the example that we've already seen of this false pretend case that comes before David about this woman and her two sons in which he doesn't administer justice. So it's not hard to imagine that David is not administering justice as he should as he listens to the people. It's not far-fetched. Probably some truth into what Absalom is saying. In fact, here is David's vulnerability. Here's where David is a poor ruler. Here is where David is dropping the ball. David is still a fine military leader. David's kingship, at this point, is still rolling along. But there's an underlying problem here of justice. And that's where he's vulnerable. That's where he's vulnerable. Now Absalom holds himself out as the great arbiter and dispenser of justice. Verse 4. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me. And now hear the key words. Circle this in your Bible, and I would give them justice. I will give them justice. Come to me. I will give you justice. What justice is he offering them? His justice. 
his justice. The justice that he thinks is right and wrong. His authoritarian justice. What an irony. This violator of justice, this fugitive of justice, is now saying, I will give you justice. And he wins the people over. Here, we are going to find that that means the people approve of what Absalom has done. This murderer is now going to be viewed as the arbiter and dispenser of justice. This one who deserves to die is now a hero. This person that should be put to death is now to be seen as the savior of Israel. That's how tipsy-turvy things come. And David plays an important part in all of this because David vindicates him. Now Absalom gained power by rewarding everyone who showed faithfulness to him, verse 5. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, anybody that showed him any respect, anybody that, that showed that they were on his side, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. He was seeking followers. He was rewarding anybody that would pay any attention. I'm your guy. Put his arm around him. I love you. I care about you. I'm going to make sure you have justice. It's such a shame that nobody is giving you justice. I'll give you justice. You're my buddy. Hang with me. So Absalom... sought to establish a following for himself. Verse 6. Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. And it works. Absalom does in fact get a people who will support and follow him to the extent of even ousting David as king. Verse 6. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. People are now ready for Absalom to become king and for David to be removed. Now that's where we're stopping the story. It goes on from there. But the heart of this story is about justice and it's about how vigilante justice cannot be a replacement of true justice. But when true justice doesn't occur, there's a vacuum. There's a vacuum. And so what do people do in that vacuum? That's what I want to talk about this morning. The vacuum of justice. What are the great takeaways from this passage? Well, first, individual applications. 
What does God require of each and every person? The answer is to be a person of justice. First and foremost, we ourselves are to be people of justice. Micah 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice? We're to see that our own sinfulness tends to cloud our vision regarding justice. We must constantly return to the scriptures for our authority. David, as a result of his own actions of having Uriah murdered, is skewed in his own perception of justice. And he struggles with how can he condemn what he did? And how did what Amnon do be that much different from what David had done to Bathsheba? He had summoned Bathsheba. She was an unwilling partner. All of a sudden, David's own sinfulness skews his ability to find fault in others. His whole mindset changes of permissiveness as a result of what he had done. We cannot allow our emotions to dictate our understanding and administration of justice. We see in this passage personally how anger, hatred, love, pity, all mitigate justice, cloud people's response to a particular issue that it no longer is principled. It becomes personal. It's not objective, it's subjective. So we must guard our own hearts when it comes to justice. Secondly, applications to our family. We cannot allow our love and commitment to our family to rise above our love and commitment to God and his word. We must be people of justice as it relates to our own families. As we see later on, we're not even there yet, David's love for Absalom rises to the point where he's willing to see a whole bunch of people die in order just for Absalom to be spared. Joab calls him out about it. We'll see it in weeks to come. But for David, family is more important than justice. But we must learn and keep in mind that a failure to administer justice in our families will not lessen strife, but rather increases strife. Because David doesn't administer justice in his own family. That doesn't solve the problem. It just makes the matters worse. One injustice is going to fuel more injustices. It doesn't stop. Thirdly, applications with regard to society as a whole, society at large. First, we must understand how crucial justice is to the well-being, safety, peace, and glory of any society. That is the essence of what makes life bearable under authority. Justice. Justice. 
And we cannot condone and certainly not promote vigilante justice in the absence of a true justice. We can't say just because people are not being, feed, feed, being, being treated justly, therefore we must take things in our own hands. We must then produce justice. We must then take over. We must then overthrow. For at the heart of vigilante justice is not justice at all, it's revenge. Absalom repeatedly violated God's word in exercising his revenge upon Amnon. All through this process, Amnon, Absalom is not acting in a righteous way. Vigilante justice results in authoritarianism. That is, that justice is what the leader says it is. That it departs from that which is principled. And it becomes what the unjust one now allows and promotes. It results in authoritarianism. Vigilante justice, if left unchecked, will result in anarchy. It will seek to overthrow all authority and replace it with an authoritarian authority. Third, we're to pray for leaders that they act wisely and justly so they may lead a quiet and peaceable life in godliness and honesty. We really need to pray for our leaders. Pray that they would act justly. There are a great many leaders seeking followers under the guise of promoting justice. It takes great discernment in realizing wherein justice actually consists. All want to claim the higher ground. All want to claim the moral authority. But we must ask ourselves constantly, what does the scripture teach? What is really the just thing to do? Not what we want done, not who will take our side, not who will make us happy, not who deals with the anger and the bitterness, but what does this word of God say that we should do? That's the basis of justice. We must be disciplined to follow the scriptures. Fourth, we should not view ourselves as the great dispensers of justice. That when we, seek, we see a lack of justice, that we are forced to usurp authority. Rather than take matters into our own hands, we must submit the matter to the righteous judge, namely God. The scripture says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I want you to listen carefully to the words of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness. All right, now if you see that, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, okay, what should you do? What should you do? Here it comes. What should you do if you see in the province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness? What do you do? Do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and yet there are higher ones over them. So don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. 
If you see in this world injustice, it's everywhere. But there's someone to hold that person accountable. And there's someone to hold that person accountable. And there's someone to hold that person accountable. So, you know, we have a court system. <laughs> we have judges. We have a Supreme Court. There are, there are levels of accountability. But the ultimate accountability is God. There is one who watches over all of this. Ecclesiastes 5 is saying, and that's God. You don't need to take matters in your own hands because God's got this. God's got this under control. God's justice will reign supreme. God is going to deal with this whole mess as we work through these chapters. Absalom will get his just rewards. Joab will get his just rewards. David is going to come to a place of recognition, once again, of what is just and what is unjust. All of this is going to be worked out by a sovereign God. And you can be assured that our sovereign God will bring mankind to justice. God's justice will reign supreme. Have no doubt God will do what is right. And it may be a long time in coming it may be a long time in coming. As we read through this passage, two years here, three years here, four years here, two years here, that adds up to an extremely long period of time for all these things to play out. And we haven't even reached the end yet. Now we're going to have the rebellion, and, and Absalom is going to try to overthrow David, and David has to run for his life, and we're going to look at all those chapters and everything that happens. It's not even over yet. Long time in coming, but it will come. And you know, it may not even come in our own lifetime, but it will come. It will come. God is going to return. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to come. And he's going to establish his kingdom. And his kingdom will be unique. Listen to the words of Isaiah chapter 9. You know them well. Referring to the birth of the Lord Jesus. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, this kingdom that Christ is establishing, this kingdom that David has failed so miserably in, there will become a new king, Jesus. On the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it, and to uphold it with justice 
and righteousness from this time forth and even forevermore. When Christ comes, he will administer justice. He will hold accountable each and every one for what they have done. And he will establish a reign, a reign of peace, a reign of prosperity, a reign of security. We will be under his authority and it will be the most blessed experience for all eternity. Why? Because he's just. Because he's just, he does what is right. Justice is so terribly, terribly important. And we all experience injustice. But the answer is not vigilante justice. The answer is not then overthrow it all. The answer is not then put it off. The answer is not take matters in your own hands. It's not that everybody decide what's the right thing to do in their own eyes. It's to submit ourselves to the authority of God, to follow his word, to do what it says, and to believe that he will set all things right. For he will rule in justice. He will rule with justice. Let's pray. Almighty God, help us, first and foremost, to be a people of justice in our own lives, in our dealings with others, in our attitudes towards others. May we not let hatred, may we not let bitterness, may we not let love or pity withhold justice. For it only leads to strife, it only leads to division, it only leads to further injustice and destruction and hardship and misery. Oh Lord, first and foremost, may we be a people of justice, a people that uphold your word, and a people who submit ourselves to the greatest of rulers, the greatest of kings, Jesus, who's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And may we seek and pray for his justice to come. May we pray for our leaders, that God would grant them hearts where they would seek to do justly. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.